Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. It's a real small book, kind of towards the end of the Old Testament. It's just after Obadiah. And um, anyway, so we're going to continue with a series that we started last week. And if you'll just kind of remember for a second, last week when I when I brought this series up, one of the things I said was is that there are like six parallel events that are taking place within this. And so I was going to spend some time each week on two of those and kind of show the parallels and kind of uh, draw from each one of those a, a really just a main point, but kind of the, 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 I guess the thrux of what's happening in the text. And so uh, today we're going to kind of look at uh, the second one of those, and it's the interaction with Jonah and the pagan sailors, and then Jonah and the pagan Ninevites. And so we'll look at chapter 1 and chapter 3 again this week. Uh, but I also wanted to remind you a little bit of what, how I set it up. And so if you weren't here last week, just to kind of catch us up. Uh, Jonah has always been one of those, those books of the Bible, or those stories, really, right? Just Jonah and the, usually Jonah and the well, or Jonah and the fish, or Jonah and the big fish, or however maybe you've heard it said. But it was always kind of one of those things that was more about like kind of twisting your arm to be obedient, right? It was kind of after morality, and it was really trying to teach you that it's, it's good to obey the commands of the Lord. And that's not wrong, but to say that that's the point of the book is wrong. Like that's not the main point of what's taking place. That's more of an implication of what's taking place. All right, so that's one of the implied things of what's happening in the, in the story. Now the story is really about how God is out to win Jonah how God is out to win Nineveh. And He wants to win Jonah as much as He wants to win Nineveh. And that's really the story that we see unfolding. The point is that God saves the mission field, sure. But God also saves the missionary. And so we get a look into what those things kind of look like. And uh, one commentator offered this. I meant to share this last week because I thought it was really good. And I think it's a danger that we all face. He said, many people are so concerned about the great fish in the story that they overlook the great God in which the story is actually about. I think that's really true. I think it's true that we can stare so much at this big fish and try to figure it out. I mean, there's debates as to whether or not the book is historical or not. I covered some of that last week and talked about how it is historical. Uh, but there's a lot of debates around this because it's just such a, it's such a big story, right? It's such kind of, there's a lot of parts in it that seem a little um, too good to be true, if you will. And the point is, they are true, and they're pointing to this big, great God who controls the land, the dry land as much as He controls the sea, as much as He controls everything else in creation, and He's working all of those things together for your good and His glory. Amen? And that's what we begin to see kind of unfold here. And so as we examine kind of the first two parallels last week, uh, one of the things we came away with, or kind of the main point of that, was that God has more ways of lovingly pursuing us than we have of running from Him. And we just kind of celebrated that together. We talked about how God's love is, is, is so pure. It's so good to us that it will pursue us. He does pursue us out of His love no matter how much we're trying to run. And so we see that when in Jonah receiving his command and then he flees to Tarshish. And on his way there, his boat is rocked by this great storm and he's tossed overboard by the guys he's sailing with. And, and then this great fish comes and swallows him. And it says of the storm that God caused the storm. It says of the fish that God caused the fish. It says of him being vomited up by the fish that God spoke to the fish and caused the fish to vomit him up. And so in all ways, God was pursuing Jonah. And that's what we looked at, is that God's love pursues us. In all things, God is pursuing the hearts of His people. And we can be sure of this. And the main point of today's parallel uh, is this, and you can write this down just kind of at the top of your notes if you're taking notes. If you're new, there's a section on the back of your worship guide if you haven't seen it yet where you can take notes. And I want you to write this down. This is a Kind of the, the, the main point of what I want us to see today is that the genuine fear, genuine fear of the Lord brings wisdom and life to our lives. I'll give you just a second to write that. I'll repeat it now for those of you who are like me and need it repeated a few times. Genuine fear of the Lord 
brings wisdom and life to our lives. Would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, uh, first of all, we say thank you for this great book, the Bible that you've given us. Your word spoken so that we may see your character, come to know of who you are and what you're like and all the ways in which uh, you are loving your people. You're saving us from our sins. You're giving us new life in Christ Jesus. And then one day we will rejoice together again in glory as all things are restored. And so, Father, Jonah is a picture of that. The book of Jonah is giving us all of those, those things about who you are. And so, Father, today as we peer into Jonah, would you open our hearts and minds to be receptive to your word, that it would not fall on hard soil, but that, our, that the, the soil of our hearts would be tilled up and fertile, that you would plant your word deep in them, hide your word in our hearts as we read in your word, that we would not sin against you. Lord, we pray that this word would bear fruit in our lives. Namely, today, I pray this word would bear fruit through repentance of, of sins, through turning to Jesus today, to living a new life, to continue walking with you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. So in the, the first three verses of Jonah chapter 1, what we see is that God comes to, to Jonah and he gives him this word and tells him to go to Nineveh and to warn them of kind of this impending destruction because their sin has risen up before the Lord, the text says, meaning that it's like a stench rising before his nostrils. They're so awful. All right, so how many of you think, man, I've been that awful before, right? That I was probably a stench to the Lord at some times, all right? Some of you won't admit it, and those are the ones who need to admit it. So here we go. So, the, the, so we are kind of the stench at times, but there's this word that comes through Jonah to Nineveh to warn them, and, and, and God wants Jonah to go to Nineveh and to warn them, and Jonah says, I'm not doing that. And so he flees uh, to a place called, called Tarshish. Uh, and, and so the reason he does this is that Nineveh is inhabited by Assyrians. Now, Assyrians at this moment were enemies of Israel. They, they, Israel is Jonah's people. He is a Hebrew. He is one of God's people, uh, as far as we see Israel concerned in the Old Testament. And he would rather them burn in God's wrath than repent. Like he said, he, he wants his mission to be giving um, blessing, uh, words of blessing to his own people, right? Like he wants his life to be about that. And then when God comes and just kind of totally wrecks what he's doing, He's like, man, I'm not doing that. I, I, I can't do that. I don't want these people to repent. I don't want them to know that God is gracious and merciful and loving. I want them to know God's wrath. I want God to destroy them like He did all of those other people throughout the history of Israel. That's what I want. And so he runs. And then we pick up in verse 4 as he's gotten onto a boat with these pagan sailors headed for Tarshish, verse 4 says this. I'm just going to read through 16. It says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. One of the things I want you to notice that I, I may not point out later, and so I'm going to point it out now, is notice that it says they cried out to their gods. They come to him and say, cry out to your God, and that the God, which is little g still in the text, that that God may hear us and, and give mercy to us or, or, or help us in this. Let's keep reading in verse 7. And they said to one another, come and let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So Jonah still hasn't confessed. He's still not saying anything, right? He's still trying to kind of hide what he's after here. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Uh-oh. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? 
What is your country and what people of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, meaning he's from Israel, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Now, one of the things that we're just tempted to do sometimes when we're reading black words on a white page is to not think about the events that are taking place. They are on a boat in the middle of a raging storm, or in the middle of the sea, which is in the midst of a raging storm. And so they're being tossed back and forth. They're having to, they're not having this friendly conversation down below, right? I mean, they're having to holler at each other to even get these words out. I mean, it is a tumultuous situation. They're, they're in dire need of help in these moments, and they feel that. And so it says, um, he asked them, what should we do for the sea has grown, uh, what should we do for the sea has grown more and more tempestuous? And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has, a come, has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Don't forget who hurled the wind, right? So the Lord's causing the sea to get more and more angry, more and more violent with this storm as they're trying to row and they, they want to kind of do things their own way. And you and I are guilty of this. The Lord's giving us clear commands. He's showing us a clear way out. And still we're like, no, nah, let me row the boat this way, right? Let me, go, let me go try to do this on my own for a moment. And the Lord's like, no, I'm not having that. So the sea becomes more violent. And it says in verse 14, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The very next verse says that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And so God sends this great fish to swallow Jonah. He spends three days and three nights in its belly where he experiences kind of this come to Jesus moment, if you will, right? Some of you know what a come to Jesus moment looks like, right? And so he experiences a, a come to Jesus moment of sorts, and he prays this prayer of gratefulness. And we're going to look at that next week. It's not really a prayer of repentance. It's kind of odd. It's really a prayer of like gratefulness that the Lord has caused this fish to swallow him, that the Lord has kind of chased him down in these moments, and he's still pursuing them, even though he's run from him. But there's really no act of repentance taking place. And so God honors the prayer, the grateful prayer. He, he causes the fish to vomit Jonah out onto dry land, and then God speaks to Jonah again, and he tells him to go to Nineveh. And the, what we looked at last week, it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And we just talked about how great it is to get those second chances. And then in verse 3, we, we read this, and let me read through 10, and you'll kind of see the parallels of these events. Notice them as I'm reading through this. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. According to the word of the Lord, remember verse 1 or 2 said that he arose and flo- to, to flee to Tarshish. Now he's arising and going to Nineveh. According to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. That's a large city, right? I mean, that's a, that's a big spot. And so Jonah began to go into the city. He goes in a day's journey, so it's about a third of the way in, if you will, and he calls out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That's all he says. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Wow. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published, uh, published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast 
herd nor flock taste anything. Yet, oh, sorry, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. And he ends his, his declaration really with a question and kind of a hope, right? He says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And then in verse 10, we read these great words. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Praise God. So, like I, like I said, there, there's, there's a few parallels here, kind of in these two events. and Some of them are, are these, that the pagans seem to be more concerned with people perishing than Jonah was. I found that intriguing, that, that Jonah doesn't seem to care about people perishing, but the sailors did. They didn't want to perish, and then the king does. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Another thing we see is that the pagans respond to God's word. They respond to his actions with worship, with repentance, with, with a, a surrendering to him. We see also that there is genuine fear of the Lord displayed by the pagans. And these people who were once didn't care about God, served various gods, all of a sudden were really interested and interested in a way that they would worship the Lord that they would surrender their lives to Him. It's, that, it's kind of that final observation of fear that I really want us to look at today. I, I want us to spend a little time on that. And so I said earlier that genuine fear of the Lord brings wisdom and life to our lives. Now, I, I think that that's a good way to sum up the passage today. I, I think it sums it up well because it gives at least two implications. Wisdom and, uh, wisdom and then we get the uh, life, right, to our lives. We're getting wisdom and life. Those are the two implications, but the implications come with a warning. And, and so I want to get to the warning here in a moment, but I want to walk through some of these implications. But before I do, let me just kind of give you a definition of what it means to fear the Lord. Like, what is a good biblical definition of fear? And you can write this down if you want. It's a little bit long, but fear in response to God's Word or actions involves both a healthy fear of God's displeasure and discipline and reverent awe. So the fear is tied to two things. It's fear of His discipline. It's fear of His action against my sin, that He is holy and right and just, and I am none of those things. And so therefore, I fear the Lord. I fear, as Jesus says, He says, do not fear man who can only uh, hurt, harm the body, but fear the one who can harm body and soul, right? That's the Lord. Who's the one that can, can harm our souls and damning us to hell? And so our souls would be harmed in that. But if we'll surrender to the Lord, if we'll repent of sins, surrender our lives to the Lord by faith in Jesus, we will be saved. And that creates a reverent fear, a reverent awe of the Lord, that we are in awe of the one who is mighty to both destroy sinners, but also the one who's mighty to save sinners. And so therefore, our fear becomes a reverent awe of Him. That we revere Him above anything else. And so we see this happen in both of these passages today with the sailors and the, as the storm which the Lord hurled upon the sea, that it caused the sailors to be frightful. They were first afraid of the sea, which then led to this exceeding fear, they said, of the Lord's power. As, as Jonah tells them who he is, that I'm a Hebrew and I, I fear the Lord, the God of the dry land and the God who controls the dry land and the sea. And they experience a, an exceeding fear of the Lord. Uh, finally, in, in reverence of Him as they're worshiping Him as the storm ceases, right? As God has spared them and saved them, there's this reverent awe. It leads to worship. It leads to the worship of their hearts that they would give, they would offer sacrifices to Him. That they would surrender themselves to Him. They would make vows, it says. But we also see this, this transpire in Nineveh. Like as the word of the Lord comes to them from Jonah, that if they don't repent, that Nineveh will be turned upside down. The people believe God. Now, remember, the word was, was just yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. And, and it's not, that's not really a preacher's best effort, I wouldn't say, right? Like, respectively speaking, I, I don't think that was his best effort. 
I, I think, as, as chapter 4 will reveal to us uh, in a couple of weeks, I, or actually chapter 3, no, it's chapter 4. Chapter 4 reveals to us in a couple of weeks that, that Jonah's actually still a bit angry that he's having to go do this. He, he still doesn't want to go preach to these people. And so he just kind of comes in, I think, with like a lackadaisical method for this. Like, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. And that's it. And it says that the people believed God. That they trusted Him in that. And so it was the, the fear of destruction, it was the fear of this great God, of this mighty God, that led them to repent. Then the, the word of the Lord from that moment reached the king. When it says the word of the Lord, or when it says the word reached the king, it's talking about the word of the Lord that, that God gave to, uh, to Jonah. It says it reached the king, and he declares the people, uh, declares that the people should fast, that they should put on sackcloth, which are, are both signs of mourning and repenting. It's a mourning over our sin. It's a mourning over how we've rebelled against God. It's a way of, of, of humbling ourselves before the Lord that we would not stand in the pride of our sin any longer. And, and he says, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So our definition of fear holds up, that fear is a response to God's word or, and or his actions, and that that involves both a healthy fear of God's displeasure and, a, and discipline, and a reverent awe of who the Lord is. The second thing we see, after we see that genuine fear of the Lord brings wisdom, is that, uh, or sorry, the first thing we see is that the fear of the Lord brings wisdom to your life. Proverbs 9.10 says this, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and that fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now as their boat is being tossed around in the stormy sea and, and Jonah is confessing that he's a Hebrew, that he's a member of Israel, God's people, and that he fears the Lord who made the dry land and the sea, the men become exceedingly afraid at Jonah's confession of whose he is. And they respond in wisdom by asking, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down? So the lot fell on Jonah. They knew something must be done with Jonah to stop the raging sea. So they asked, what shall we do to you? What, what is it that we should do to make the sea quiet? And Jonah responds also in wisdom. Jonah says, throw me in the sea. And then he makes a confession, which is good and right for us to see today. He says, it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Now, the sailors kind of return to pagan ways in the next, kind of the next breaths, right? The sailors tried to, to row hard. They wanted to outrow the waves, outrow the storm to get back to dry land. But the storm grew stronger and stronger so that they couldn't do it. So they, they turn then to wisdom and they cry out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So again, there's this moment where the storm is growing to be too much. It's exceedingly great. They're exceedingly afraid, it says. And what's happening is their hearts are being changed. Their hearts are being transformed. That Now they're beginning to see that our gods won't do. Our idols are not good enough for this. We must now turn to our last hope. Our last hope is this God of the Israelites. The one who has shown over the course of history to be so against us that he's destroyed people who are not Israel over and over and over again throughout the history of Israel. But he's our last shot. Like he's who we have to call out to in these moments. And so they, they make this call. Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us his innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they're attributing every event that they're facing to the sovereignty of God. That, that God, you are so sovereign, you caused this storm to come upon us. God, you are so sovereign that you're chasing this guy down who is running from you as he's just confessed to us. God, you have done exactly as it pleased you. Every moment we are in the midst of right now, 
has been according to your plan. You see, God's not up, up, upstairs, if you will. God's not in heaven rolling dice. God's not in heaven just trying to think through, oh, what would be good to do here? My goodness, how am I going to respond to that? The God of heaven and earth is ordering the every event of our lives. He's ordering every moment of our lives. Everything that we're facing and going through is the Lord doing as it pleases Him. Now, does that mean that we'll totally understand or comprehend everything that happens? Absolutely not. This is why the Lord declares that my ways are higher than your ways, that my thoughts are greater than your thoughts, declares the Lord. So there are ways about the Lord, believe it or not, <laughs> that transcend the power of our own minds. He thinks higher than we do. He does higher than we do. Honestly, what this is teaching us is that there's not a moment in our lives where we ought to be afraid except that we fear the Lord. That He is fully 100% in control. And so the, the sailors, these pagan sailors, make a really astounding declaration that God has done as it pleases Him. So every, every storm in life is, is meant for this one purpose, that we may feel our own inability to save ourselves. And that we may turn to God for help. Now oftentimes, the, the feeling of inability leads to a fear. It leads to a doubt. It leads to a worry and a concern. And we're kind of trapped in the emotions of that. And we don't know the way out. Like we're, we're looking around, but we can't figure it out. And it's in those moments that God reveals Himself to us. And that, that fear that we're feeling leads to this wisdom. That we would begin to fear the Lord in a way that would lead to wisdom. That, 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 that we seek salvation as it's only found in Him. That we begin to understand that He alone is our refuge. He alone is a strong tower. He alone is mighty to save. Nothing else. It's that same inability that led to Nineveh's repentance. Their repentance was a wise response to the fear of God that they felt. Fear led to wisdom. Only a few moments earlier, they were, they were a great city, it says. Exceedingly great city. Living in the hustle and bustle of exceedingly great city life, whatever that may be. There's shop owners and husbands and fathers and mothers and, and, and wives. And, and people going to and from jobs. And the king who's ruling over Nineveh. I mean, they're, they're people like the rest of us. They're people in rebellion to God, though. They're, they're people who have made God's people their enemy. They're after what Israel has become. They want it for themselves. But they want it through domination. They want it through power. They want it through overthrowing them. And so the word of the Lord comes to them. And it produces this fear which leads them to wisely repent and to hope for God's mercy. And again, I just declare to you today that this is what the Lord's after. Like the Lord saves the mission field and the missionary. This is what He's doing. He's ordering the events of our every lives in order to bring about salvation in our lives. He'll do whatever it takes to save a person's soul. Now, He may send a storm. He may send a great fish. He may send something else to grab our attention. But one thing's for sure, as we see in both accounts, He always sends His Word. He always sends His Word to us. Now, the thing is, is that there's, there's two responses to God's Word. Jasper touched on this a few weeks ago as we went through Psalm 1. There's two responses to the Word of God. There's wisdom and there's folly. You can either choose to obey the Word of the Lord and live wisely, or you can choose to obey the Word of your own heart and live foolishly. That's it. Anyone who says, I'm indifferent, is living foolishly. They're obeying the word of their own heart. They've made themselves their own God. It's folly. But anyone who would say rightly, 
that I'm going to surrender myself, that I'm going to humble myself before the Lord and repent of my sins and place my faith in Jesus Christ for the, for, for, uh, the deliverance of God's wrath over my sin. I'm going to be delivered from that in Christ. Anyone who says that is living according to the wisdom of God. He's saving them. The question that rises up from the text with the intention of waking us up from our, our wandering slumber. Anybody, anybody feel like you just kind of wander mindlessly? Like sometimes I feel like I'm just so prone to wander away from God, I do it without even thinking about it. Like it's, it's just a mindless wandering. And the, the question that rises up from the text to slap us out of that is this. Do I fear the Lord in such a way that I'm following His commands? Do, do I fear Him in that way? Do I revere Him in such a way that I'm following His commands? Do I know that He's the one who controls my eternal future? Or am I so wrapped up in today, am I, do I largely view the commands of God as optional? Like a Baskin-Robbins. I like this flavor, but not that one, so I'll take those. The, the Bible is not a Baskin-Robbins of commands. You don't get to pick the flavor you want. It's not Burger King. You can't have it your way. There is one way, Jesus says. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That no man comes to the Father except through me. There is one way to the Lord, one way to God, and it's through Jesus. There's nothing else. And so when the command of the Lord is to all of us, every single one of us, all of us have gone astray, when the command of the Lord is to repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins that you may receive eternal life, there's two responses to that, wisdom and folly. We must know where we stand and answer to that question. On which side we're falling on. Which side we're walking down? For Nineveh and the sailors both, there was nothing optional about what they must do. There was nothing optional about what laid before them. They had heard the stories of God's power to save and to destroy any who were opposed to Israel. And so they hoped to be on the saving end this time and not the destroying end, right? They, they cry out to God. They, they make vows to Him. They, they sit in sackcloth and ashes, mourning over where they are, hoping that the Lord would have mercy on them, that He would relent. I just think it's a, it's a wise thing for us to look into this and say, may all of us search our hearts, turn from evil, and follow the Lord who is merciful, gracious, and mighty to save. Now, the second thing I wanted to point out is that the fear of the Lord brings life to your life. That may sound a bit odd. But I mean life in the way that Christ means life when He says, I will give you life and life abundantly. That there's life and then there's life. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a life that we get here and now, and then there's a life that we receive here and now that impacts eternity. One of those is just common grace to all mankind. That's life. It's common grace to all mankind. All mankind is getting to enjoy the ups and the downs, the, the wins and the losses, the, the droughts and the, the fruitful seasons together, right? It rains and pours on every single one of us. It's... it's the sun shines on every single one of us. We're all getting to experience the common graces of God. But there is, a, there is a saving grace of the Lord, which He stores up for His people, the ones who will place their faith in Jesus Christ, and that's life. <laughs> like life here and now. It's teaching me to be joyous in the wins and the losses. It's teaching me to be at peace in the droughts and also in the times of fruition. It's teaching, teaching me to, to love people, to, to love the Lord, to follow His commands. It's all of those things. It's life the way life was meant to be. 
And that's the one that the Lord wants to bring, and it's brought on by the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 14.27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. So the fear of the Lord is this fountain of life that turns us away from the snares of death. So it's life-giving, right? It's not life-taking as the snares of death are, is what is what's implied there. Proverbs, uh, sorry, Psalm 25, 14 says that the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. Remember Jesus and John towards the end when He's speaking to His disciples, He says, I no longer refer to you as My servants, but you are My friends. There's, there's this moment where when you fear the Lord and life is giving to you, given to you, you're no longer His enemy. You're now called a friend. And so the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. Praise God. When, when the men finally submit to God's Word, when, when the, the sailors finally submit to God's Word through Jonah, they toss Him into the sea, and the, the sea ceased from its raging. They're, they're grateful for life in that moment, right? They're like grateful that they're spared, but they're also amazed by God's power. They're in awe of what's just transpired. And so they respond to the Lord's kindness in verse 16, as we read a moment ago, but I'll read it again. It says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. There was life. They, they, they received life from the fear that was brought on by the storm and by the power of God and by, by the very experience they had just got, gone through. But we also know that Jonah's life was spared with the help of that big fish, right? That the, the fear of the Lord then is truly a fountain of life, that he's delivering all mankind who fears him in a reverent, awe-inspiring way. He's delivering them from the snares of death. Now, if, if you and I will, will learn from what we're seeing in God's Word and will allow these things to hit our hearts in such a way that we'll respond in repentance and faith, we'll trust God, we'll follow His commands in the storm, then, then He too will give us life. That the stormy waters were, were just God's conduits to bring about uh, the, the, the stormy, to bring to bear really the stormy souls of, in their need for repentance and faith. God, God does the same in our lives. The, the, it's not always a storm. It's not always some dire situation. Sometimes it is. It's not always those things though that lead us to genuine fear that brings this wisdom and life. Sometimes it's simply a word from the Lord. And that's the case of Nineveh, right? That's what you see in Nineveh. The word of the Lord came to them through Jonah, and fearing the Lord's holiness and great power, they repented of their sins, they begged for the Lord's mercy, and God responds to their actions in 3.10. It's so amazing. Let's read it again. He says, When God saw what they did, they humbled themselves to sackcloth and ashes, they uh, cried out to God, they turned from their evil ways, they fasted and prayed. When God saw what these pagans did, these enemies of Him did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. For both the sailors and the Ninevites, the fear of the Lord's discipline led them to repentance and faith, making them recipients of His covenant and, his, and becoming his friends. Repentance and faith are, are, are two sides of the same coin, though. Neither can exist without the other. You can't have just repentance or just faith. It must be repentance and faith. Repentance is possible only when faith is present, and where there is faith, repentance will also be found. It's the way, it's the way of the Lord. Faith comes from a spiritual awakening to our own need and to God's glory. But repentance is a gift from God that flows from faith. It is the evidence of genuine faith. In Acts 11, as Gentiles are for the first times really being saved, the Jews declared, the Jewish believers declared this, God has, God has granted to the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. Just affirming the work of the Lord. 
once again, there's, there's this kind of this question that leaps from the pages of our Bibles to kind of Bruce Lee and Fist of Fury knock us out of our wandering days. And it's this. Do I fear the Lord in such a way that leads me to daily repentance of my sins? Or am I largely aloof to my erroneous ways? And therefore, I live as though repentance is for those who are really bad, but not me. For the sailors and for Nineveh, they knew that surrender to God through their repentance was their only hope for salvation. It was their only hope to be forgiven of their sins. It, it wasn't an option. It was the only way. And the warning that kind of rises out of what we see here between the genuine fear that they felt and then the fear that Jonah just says he has, isn't it odd that Jonah would say, I am a Hebrew, I fear the Lord while he's running away from the Lord? It, it's a warning to us, it ought to be, that those of us who would say, I am a Christian, I am a believer. I will declare it in all the ways that seem to matter. But when it comes to the quiet, when it comes to the dark spaces of our life, where we're, we think we're hidden from the light of the Lord, and we're making decisions, we're giving in to temptations, those are the moments that tell the true story of your heart. If I say I fear the Lord and yet I'm always running from Him, I'm never surrendering to Him, I'm never giving my life to Him, then a question I have to ask myself is, is my fear genuine? Am, am I truly one of His? Am I truly following the Lord? There's this disease that's kind of rampant in biblical cultures, right? Like the Bible Belt. Where we grow up in church and we become so familiar with God that we'll focus on the great fish in these stories and not the great God anymore. We, we become so concerned with the details of the Bible that we forget that the Bible's about God. And we'll want to argue the finer points of things. And sometimes that's fun and enjoyable. But, but still, what's happening in our hearts is we're, we're no longer surrendering to the Lord daily. We're no longer repenting of sins daily. We're no longer fighting against the old man. We're just embracing the old man in a way that looks spiritual. And the problem with a culture like this is we, it's easy to just blend in in that, in that mess. And so we'll, we'll be hopeful when we have no reason to be hopeful. We'll think that we're saved and that we're serving the Lord because we're in church or we're in a home group or we're telling someone, I'll be praying for you. Or we're liking and sharing certain social media posts. We feel touched by the Lord at times. I'm not saying that none of that is genuine. What I'm asking you to do is to ask yourselves, is this genuine? I've heard things my whole life about you talk about evangelism, or you talk about sharing the Lord with someone, people always respond kind of the same way. It's like, well... I live in Magnolia. Everybody knows the Lord here. Listen, if that were the case, crime rates would be going down, not up. Drug abuse would be going down, not up. Depression would be going down, not up. That We would be experiencing new life in ways that we're not experiencing new life yet. So, so we can't keep telling people, if you say you're a believer, that's good enough. We just can't. The Bible is very clear. Jesus is very clear when he says, if any of you want to be my disciple, meaning you want to be a follower of me, 
You want to live for me. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. We must be careful because it's the deny yourself part that's extremely difficult. And if we're not careful, we'll be so deceived by our own hearts, by our own desires, that we'll lump those into this kind of spiritual, cultural, Christianity-like gumbo thing that we get sometimes in the Bible Belt. And we'll think, I'm in. I look like he does, or I look like she does, or I, I'm, golly, I'm better than they are. <laughs> right? So the barometer of life, the, the great test of life, the way that we're going to measure ourselves in life is this way. Am I denying myself? How often should you deny yourself? Somebody, somebody answer. Is it daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, once in your life? How often? Daily, every hour. Now, if we're all willing to be honest, and I'm not going to ask you to do this, but we would all answer a resounding no to, to, to us doing that. That we're not every hour denying ourselves. We're not every minute denying ourselves. We know that that's what we should do. But we're constantly giving in to sin. We're constantly turning our lives over to things that are not godly. And in the same breath, we'll ask the Lord to help us. <laughs> beauty of all this is, of the gospel, is that no matter what kind of mess you've made of your life, no matter how often you are like refusing to deny yourself, refusing to take up your cross, refusing to follow the Lord, the beauty is that when you get to that moment, when the Lord brings you to the moment where you can, you can truthfully do that, He's right there. And so you'll never get too far. You'll never be too low down in the ocean for the big fish to come get you. <laughs> you'll never be on a boat headed in the wrong direction and God not be able to reach you there. You're never outside of His calling distance. Is that still a thing these days? It, God will do whatever it takes in your life to bring about a fear that leads to wisdom in life. A, a genuine fear of Him that leads to wisdom in life. I pray that it wakes us from those slumbers. I pray that some of those questions are, are helpful for you. Romans 12.3 has always been really helpful for me as I think through these things. It says, For by the grace that was given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Ouch! But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So genuine fear of the Lord brings wisdom and life to our lives. And the theme of these parallel events that Jonah is uh, of Jonah reminds me of Solomon. Solomon, in his conclusion to Ecclesiastes in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he, he comes to the end of himself. He's at the end of all that he's done. If you remember the series, it was great. But, but he searched literally for meaning and life in everything. So it was, it was money. He was exceedingly rich. There's no one been richer than Solomon was. And through that, he, he gained great fame, he had relationships and both friendships and not always marital. That's all I'll say. I see young ears. Um, he tried alcohol. He tried, he tried just aging. <laughs> He's like, maybe aging will, will, will bring about some of these things. He talked about having houses and more houses and, and having enough money to basically build what we would consider like a national park. And Solomon comes to the end of his pursuit after all of that, all of the things that, that sometimes we're guilty of saying, man, if I just had more, then I'd be happy. He comes to the end of all that and he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. There's nothing else. He says, there's nothing 
else to hear. Everything's been heard. I've tried it all. Listen to me. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's it, my friends. That, that is what we're called to, to fear God and to keep His commands. The rest of life, the ups, the downs, the good, the bad, the plenty, the little, all of that, every single ounce of it is grace. It's, it's God's grace on our lives. Every single bit of that has nothing to do with what makes life meaningful, what makes life valuable or purposeful. Life finds its purpose, finds its meaning in how you see the Lord, how you're responding to Him. So I ask again, do you fear the Lord in such a way that it's produced wisdom in you, that it's produced life in you? Or is the Lord just some otherworldly kind of ethereal idea that is beneath your worship because you are too blinded by your pride. For Nineveh, Jesus says that the three days and three nights that Jonah spent in the belly of the fish was a sign of God's great mercy to sinners. And it became a sign to them. But in the same way for you and I, Jesus' death and resurrection three days later is a sign for us. That the good news of the gospel is that God has poured out on Jesus the wrath that we deserve so that we may not perish, so that we may have eternal life and dwell with Him forever by faith in Jesus Christ. The death and the resurrection of Jesus give us every reason to hope in the mercy of God. So we are on a better playing field. We have better options. We have more evidence than Nineveh had to turn from sin and to turn to the Lord. We have more evidence than the sailors had to turn from sin and turn to the Lord. And so I just ask you, kind of beg of you, lest the days of rebellion drag on as those days in Nineveh, or lest the sea swallow us up as it almost did those sailors. So that either way, we can now surrender our lives to the Lord. Would you do that today? Would you surrender your life to the Lord? Believers and unbelievers alike, you may stand to your feet.